0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm speaking with Chris Stott. Chris is the Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager of 1851, the Emerging Companies Fund that he co-founded two years ago. Since then, the fund has produced a compound annual growth rate of 33% per annum. We talked to Chris amongst other things about his outlook of the market and where he sees things going from here. He talks about how he uses body language and his interpretation of body language when analyzing companies and particularly dealing with CEOs. He also gives us a tip on where he would put a dollar if he had one spare to invest if it didn't go into his fund. Once again, please remember that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it specific advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast, and of course, receive advice and read all the associated documents such as information memorandums and PDSs. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at Coda Capital. Enjoy the episode. Chris Stott, welcome to Inside the Road. Thanks for having me, David. Well, Chris, perhaps you could start off by giving us Giving the listeners a bit of background to yourself sure
1: so um, i'm the one of the co-founders and chief investment officer at 1851 capital which is a small boutique investment management business started just over two years ago um, we focus primarily on the small cap end of the market so we invest in small companies only listed on the australian equity market uh, we've been doing this for all north of 15 years now previously i worked at wilson asset management as the Chief Investment Officer there. Um, Full tenure there was 12 years. So um, spare time, I've got a couple of young kids. I love spending time with them, Um, particularly my son, Edward, uh, who's a mad cricketer and an AFL supporter. I'm not sure where he got that from with me being the mad AFL fan too, but uh, uh, it's good fun.
0: We've had a good summer with the Australian Ashes anyway.
1: We certainly have, haven't we? And um, unfortunately they couldn't get the 5-0, but you'll take 4-0, wouldn't you, any, any day of the week. That's right. Um, why
0: small caps?
1: Look, we believe that that's where the, the market is the most inefficient. For, in, for for example, there's the most opportunity to generate our performance versus our benchmark. And we've 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 noticed that through many a cycle over fifteen years, through the ups and the downs, um, we've noticed over time there's less broker coverage in that end of the market. Um, generally, less liquidity, so you need to tread carefully, particularly through moments like the GFC and the COVID-related correction that we had back in two thousand and twenty. Um, it's also very exciting. There's always that's where the new upcoming businesses are. You, you get to meet some fascinating people, uh, personalities along the way,
0: um, and go along the journey with them. And why did you start 1851? And where does the, the name 18, why 1851?
1: So the year 1851, David, was the year the gold rush commenced. Oh. Um, so it was a year of a it was a commenced a period of wealth and prosperity uh, here in Australia. Uh, so that was the the motivating driver behind the name itself. Um, the reason why we started is both Martin and I, the co-founders, we just love investing. And it's a bit of a cliche, but um, after my 12 year tenure at Wilson Asset Management, I had a year off, a year, off, a year essentially gardening leave. Um, great time to spend with the family and have a good think about what I wanted to do. Um, and very, very quickly I realised that I had a you know, it's the passion for markets it was very, very deep. Um, after three months into my year off, I started trading personally my own money um, and then soon after that I turned my mind to the formation
0: of fifty one Capital, which we uh, fully, formally commenced in February of 2020. And how have you structured the fund, given your experience at Wilson? Was there anything that you specifically want to ensure that you did in terms of its structure and how it looked and felt to make sure it was optimised or fit for purpose?
1: Yes, so we're primarily a growth manager, so we're looking for those growth companies, or we, we talk about talk about our Um, investment processes, growth of the value overlay. So we're primarily looking for those growth companies, but we still invest in those value-type opportunities when they do arise. Um, In terms of the structure of the fund itself, where we're active managers, we're totally benchmark unaware, so we don't own certain stocks in the index, even just to mirror the index, we think you can buy an ETF for that. Um, And so we generally hold anywhere from 30 to 80 stocks in the portfolio. Um, We're long only, so we don't short sell. We could short sell based on our history, We haven't been good short sellers, so we've taken that off the table. Um, And generally speaking, we can hold, um, uh, we say through a cycle, we'll generally average less than 20% cash over time. Right as we speak today, we're holding 8% cash. Collectively, the staff at 1851 are the biggest investors in the fund. um, So we strongly believe in that alignment um, with our fellow investors. Um, And currently the, the fund size sits just shy of 500 million,
0: just two years in. And had, was that easy to raise that capital or uh, was it mainly growth or was it quicker than expected is a better way of putting it?
1: It certainly was quicker than expected given that we launched the fund, uh, you know, six weeks or four weeks, sorry, before the, the, the COVID-induced correction we saw in late February of 2020 uh, for those those four weeks. So uh, we commenced back in February, as I said, back in 2020 with $80 million. We primarily raised money from high net worth family offices um, and a few other... Uh, individuals that had contacted us directly uh, it, it certainly was a difficult time to raise money um, we were pleased to have um, 80 million dollars at the start and um, particularly after the start we had we had we came into the market a very tough time obviously with the, the market down almost 40 percent in the space of four weeks at the lows and so we're pleased that we've been able to perform very strongly in our first two years and build on the track record that we've had investing in small caps for well over a decade.
0: I think the performance has been outstanding, if I'm right, so around 33% compound compound annual growth since inception, albeit two years.
1: Yeah, two years in and after all fees and expenses, so uh, we've just got to try and keep it going. And and the fee structure you've opted for, Chris? Is 1.25% management fee and a 20% performance fee above our benchmark, which is the Small Ordinaries uh, Accumulation Index, subject to clawing back any underperformance
0: um, that we may or may not so incur over time. Yeah. And and is the fund currently closed to all but existing investors?
1: It is, yeah. So we, we set out the outset, we're strong believers um, in terms of the bigger, the, or the larger your fund gets over the time, the harder it is to generate any meaningful outperformance. And so um, at the outset of this, we targeted a soft close um, level of 400 million which we were lucky to hit that in August of 2021. So 18 months into our journey, we, we were able to soft close the product. So it remains open to existing investors. Um, we may look to reopen the fund at some stage down the track or hard close it. It just really depends. And we'll, so we'll actively manage our capacity um, in future years to ensure that we're keeping it at a certain size where we believe it's not gonna detract from our ability to generate snimming and outperformance uh, over time.
0: So for the benefit of the listeners, I, I think that's aimed around you want to be able to take advantage of opportunities and make sure they fit, where quite often managers having a model of the more money they manage, the more they make, they tend to justify, oh, well, we'll close the fund at 500, they get to 500, oh, well, actually, we're getting access to block trades now, that'll be even better, we'll close it at a billion, they're at a billion, and all of a sudden, where they used to make their bread and butter, they're not investing in those companies anymore because they, that just wouldn't be a significant part of the fund if they entered it, or it's too illiquid for the amount of funds, or it doesn't, you know, they would be too big a portion of that company's, um, you know, they'd be over 10% of the company if it was a small company, if they were to try to deploy the type of weighting they wanted to it. Um, is there a point where you think you'd start distributing capital back to managers, and, and, and what sort of level is that? And firstly, I want to congratulate you on actually closing it off because we hear a lot of managers say yes we're going to it'll be capital constrained and we'll close it off and not a lot of them can actually pull the trigger and 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 come through with that so well done but at what sort of level do you think notionally you might return capital
1: six to eight hundred million and that's based on a history of investing in the small cap space in australia for well over a decade and so we've we've been through this before where we've um, been part of a business that's growing quite quickly and substantially and we've found that around that six to 800 million level was around the time where it started to really impede our ability to outperform. And as you mentioned before, you're investing in a company um, with 100 million of of, uh, assets under management, a 1% weighting is quite manageable, $1 million. If you're you're investing in a billion dollars, it's 10 times that. And so your ability to get set liquidity-wise on the market and move around on the buy and sell side becomes very, very difficult. We've lived that, we've been through that experience we want to ensure that doesn't happen again. So we do have various option as you, options, as you mentioned, before we actually fully hard close the fund off uh, down the track. One of them is distributing capital back to investors, um, that, and that's uh, one tool. The other tool that we've got at our disposal is limiting people's ability to reinvest distributions. So we're an annual dis- payer of distributions at the end of every financial year. There's um, a trust structure, we distribute out what's there to be distributed if there is one to be paid. Right now, we've got about sixty percent of our investors that, that reinvest that distribution, so they're probably the two obvious tools that we've got at our disposal uh, before we have to sit down and have that serious, hard close discussion. But as we as we sit here today, um, that's the sort of level that we see it as a as a prudent thing to do. Uh, prudent thing to do.
0: So it might be argued that you've had some pretty good tailwinds when you've opened up this fund, which is fortuitous to come in at almost the bottom where COVID hit. Um, and it might be argued that coming into 2022, as we see interest rate concerns, um, inflation concerns, a rotation from uh, companies that were valued with very very low interest rates in mind and uh, high growth, aggressive valuations, and pretty much everything in that space, whether it's crypto or digital related or um, you know high tech companies without earnings or a, a clear pathway to earnings being valued at high multiples, all of those seem to have been hammered in the January that we've just had. Um, how it, how have you fared through that period and how are you thinking about that, given that you have a, a growth uh, sort of disposition?
1: We've fared uh, well so far. Um, in January, the portfolio outperformed the benchmark by 1.7%. So, we were down absolute. So, we hate losing money to start, mm-hmm. but... Um, we fared pretty well, in a sense, that as you mentioned, that those a lot of those growth companies, particularly in that technology space, have under, been under enormous pressure. And the main driver of that has really been um, the market adjusting to the forward-looking guidance around interest rates. Um, you know, it, it appears as though that interest rates, both here um, and more so in the US, will go up a lot more than people think over the next 12 months while the market's pricing that. Where, where of the belief, and particularly on the back of the RBA governor's comments recently, is that the the tightening cycle here may not be as quick as some people are expecting Um, Look, our base case forecast is that the first rate hike here in australia will be in august of this year Um, the RBA have been really clear around two things needing underlying inflation to be at the upper end or even above that two to three percent range currently it sits at 2.6 percent in the underlying terms and also wages growth uh, to be stronger north of three percent and wages growth we haven't had at that level for well over a decade and that was potentially a policy mistake made coming out of the GFC was they started the tightening cycle too quickly and we never, we've never we seen an, anemic uh, growth in wages for well over a decade. So our belief is that we'll see two rate hikes this year, the first one in August and then potentially in cup day um, of this year. So the bond market's pricing in three to four rate increases as we speak. So we think that bodes well for the equity market over the next 12 months. We think the biggest risk to the outlook at the moment is that if the both central, well, central banks here and in the US tighten rates too quickly and perhaps trigger a recession in calendar year 2023. And what we've noticed over time, if you study going back through previous market cycles over the last 30 or 40 years, when you've had a period, a short-term period, where interest rates have gone up quite quickly, around that time or just before that moment, you normally see a correction in the market as it, as it adjusts to the, the new outlook for interest rates. And we've, we feel like we've just had that through the month of January where, you know, the lows, the market was down north of 10%. Normally, if you study these other cycles, 18 months later, a bear market uh, uh, commences. So we are very, we're watching it very, very closely like everybody else, but that's certainly to us, barring another black swan event, new COVID variants, which I'm sure we'll get, which the vaccines will be able to treat. Um, we feel as though that's the biggest risk to the outlook and has, as we sit here today. So how we manage the portfolio through that is we hold a diversified portfolio. We've got around 70 different companies. At the moment we're holding 8% cash. We've got the ability to go to 35% cash in 10 business days. So even though we primarily are a small cap or a micro cap manager, um, we've got a very high level of focus on portfolio liquidity. and living through the gfc and also the the COVID crash i call it from 2020 that they're two of the best lessons and learnings you'll have through that period is liquidity is so critical at this end of the market
0: and talking of liquidity do you have the ability to hold unlisted equities no we don't and that's very deliberate um because many of your peers uh you know during i guess the good times have found themselves owning more and more pre-ipo uh, unlisted equities uh, which have really supported growth, but you wonder when things start going a bit shaky how liquid or where they end up on those.
1: Now I think that a lot of those will become liquidity traps, David, now. I think that game's over in terms of... Um the market's appetite for companies that are not generate, making money or they're two or three years away from breaking even, and those companies don't really fit our process, so we don't typically invest in those. But the puzzling thing is, if you reflect over the last 12 to 18 months, as you quite correctly say, we estimate around 70% of our um, peers or other small cap fund managers in Australia do invest in pre ipo or unlisted opportunities. And if you've noticed some of the uh, gains made. In the last 12 to 18 months in particular it's no great surprise um, that particularly where you can invest in a company three months before at ipos at a 20 to 30 percent discount to the ipo price and then not be at escrow on on the ipo day and sell out on a quick 20 30 percent gain and we're the people who are supposed to fund that game <laughs> by not investing in those unlisted assets so that's not for us um so we see that as a a re- we think that game's over we think that the peak we've seen the peak now in unlisted investments and I think that um, it's going to be fascinating to see. Um, the ones that will come to market now will be the more high quality ones that make money, generate real levels of cash and have got you know, decent business propositions um, ahead of them um, or keys, key points of differentiation. So uh, we think that's going to be a really interesting um, part of the market to watch over the next 12 months in particular.
0: Chris is a way of giving our listeners an idea and understanding of your process. Would you be able to perhaps talk through a specific example of how it's gone through your process and where it's played out?
1: Of course, so Unity Group uh, is one. It's one of our top holdings at the moment, Um, in our top five. We've owned it since the inception of the fund. Unity Group's a telecommunications Business essentially, it's a competitor to the MBN. So, what their main business is rolling fibre to new ha- housing estates, uh, particularly, you know, for instance, in parts of southwest Sydney like Auburn Park, um, where they have a dominant share. So, they they install the infrastructure first of all. Um, That's generally the property developer will help fund that rollout of infrastructure, which is really really a critical point. And then secondly, once the fibre is installed, they earn that new annuity stream or income once the consumer connects their internet up uh, after they've moved into the home so they get that reoccurring revenue stream for many many years to come. In terms of how that one fits into our process uh, we met Mick Simmons um, at the outset of the launch of the fund about six months before um, he's, he's got a really good track record previously at M2 Telecommunications and TPG so that's a big part of our process is focus on management and the best uh, bit of advice I had one day was assessing a company's management was um, essentially we're in the privileged position managing money on uh, people's behalves, where we're passing that money then on to these CEOs of the companies that we invest in. So we essentially see them as you know, co-investing with us. And, um, so it's a, really, really, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's, it's a very important part of our um, process. So that was a big tick. Um, we met with the company several times face to face. We've done site tours, going out inspecting their assets and, uh, and the like. And so that's been a really key uh, part of the process. Speaking to competitors and unlisted competitors as well is a key part of our process. So, um, you know, one of the fun parts about what we do as fund managers is that we get lied to, you know, quite a bit. Um, And being able to to recognise that is a really critical part of the process. We've gone through body language training over the years to try and give ourselves an edge in that regard. It's a bit harder over Zoom these days with, you know, (laughs) not not as much in face-to-face, but uh, you do pick up a lot from body language. Um, So speaking to unlisted competitors are great because they're just going to tell you how it is there's there's no they're not sugarcoating we're coding it there's no there's no, motiva- there's no motivation for them to do that so that's a really important part of our process we do over 100 unlisted company meetings a year um, across various sectors so with unity group we, we we went through all that process we obviously model up the company um, value the company speak to other brokers that cover the stock from a research perspective um, and then determine a position of the portfolio and as, as i said we hold 70 stocks in the portfolio we like a diversified portfolio uh, for Unity Group, which was a new addition to the fund at the start, it was a 3% weight. It grew to 6%, which you were lucky enough where the share price had doubled over time. Um, one of the key tools we use from a risk standpoint is, um, is we manage our weightings quite closely. So we've now pared that back to 3% again. Um, we don't like to see stocks become an inordinately large part of the portfolio. Just from a risk standpoint, we know things go wrong over time and we'd like to have that flexibility. So that's one that's certainly gone well for us. Um, and I'd say um, is getting towards the upper end or getting close to our valuation target, so it has almost played out so far.
0: And when you're determining valuation, A, that you're happy to enter on, and then B, when you're looking to exit, what type of metrics uh, or methods do you, do you like to use? Are you price earnings? Are you discounted cash flow? What sort of things are you looking at? So it's, it's
1: all those things, but it's primarily you know, earning enterprise value or EV to EBITDA, earnings before interest tax depreciation, amortisation, PE or price to earnings ratios. But take a step back, Over doing this for 15 years, if I could describe what the perfect stock looks like at the outset when we invested into the company, it's a company that's got no other fund managers on the share register, so it's it's still an undiscovered story. Or if you go to your family barbecue on the weekend and you say, I've just invested in company X, and they say, well, who's that? That's a big tick. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no stockbroker coverage, the company's profitable, you know, good management, generating high levels of cash, and generally they've got net cash on the balance sheet, which we, people would argue, well that's having a lazy balance sheet, we take the opposite view um, in the sense that having net cash on the balance sheet for a company provides options, whether it's from an M&A perspective, they can go out and acquire businesses and grow earnings that way. They can do share buybacks, capital management, um, higher dividends and the like. So. We've found that some of our best stocks over the years have had those characteristics, in particular having net cash on the balance sheet, which we think is really important within the smaller companies sector, um, you know, given that they are generally uh, high, highly concentrated businesses. They don't have diversified revenue streams in a lot of cases, therefore the propensity for something to go wrong is a lot higher. Um, so having net cash on the balance sheet is terrific for a rainy day. And again, going through the GFC and the COVID correction of 2020, Uh, We we saw it again, Um, you know, the the stocks that got hit the hardest and first were the ones that had the highest levels of debt or the highest levels of gearing. And and so generally those companies that have got net cash on the balance sheet uh, is is a really important part of our process and they typically um, we find it can outperform if the uh, capital deployment um, uh, strategy from the boards, the company's board and management is successful.
0: Now you talked about interviewing management as being important and um, also the, the behavioural training with um, body language. What, what are some of the red flags that you see in that area or that you've experienced? Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> so,
1: um, to start with, I think, you know, what are, generally what are red flags that we look for um, in a company interview? And there's only certain questions you can ask um, you know, in, a com- in a company and um, sticking to publicly available information. A few examples though, and um, my previous colleague, Matthew Kibben at Wilson Asset Management tells his story very well. We had an investment uh, going back in the mid-2000s, ABC Learning, um, Mm -hmm. which was a a childcare roll-up, very successful for many, many years, and then went broke in the GFC. Eddie Groves was the CEO. Um, We owned ABC for many, many years, and it did quite well for us. And we we were lucky enough to sell it um, back in 2006, 2007. And the reason why we sold it is that over the years we'd meet Eddie twice a year on the back of results and Eddie would say one thing to us. He'd say, the one thing that you really, the only thing you need to worry about our business is the level of occupancy in our childcare centers. You know, is it 80 or 90%? It makes sense. Um, The the fixed cost leverage you get is quite enormous as the occupancy level increases. So we'd always ask Eddie every six months, what's your occupancy level? And he'd tell us and he'd say, then a moment came, you know, I think it was mid to late 2006 and Eddie said we asked the question so Eddie what how's your occupancy level and he said no you don't need to worry about that anymore and we said "Oh, well, why is that and he goes well we're a much bigger business these days we're growing in the US you know we've got more far more centers here in Australia it's not, it's not important anymore so that was a red flag and so one of our key things that we do is we typically ask companies the same questions every time we meet them just to make sure they're sticking to strategy sticking to plan the story hasn't shifted you know, changes in remuneration can obviously do that and incentivise that, we saw that with Metcash over the years with Andrew Reitzer, where um, he was a terrific CEO for a very long time and then all of a sudden his remuneration was was primarily tied to EPS growth. And so Metcash, grocery wholesaler, all of a sudden went out and started acquiring Autobahn, um, businesses that were clearly outside of their core competency or what we thought was their core competency, geared up the balance sheet, the balance sheet had too much debt and almost set the company broke. So um, they are probably some of a couple of examples of some key red flags that we would see when we're interviewing companies.
0: And at the moment, are there any particular style of companies that you're really interested in uh, and, and, and are excited by that you see coming through?
1: Yes, there always are, and particularly in the telecommunications space. So Unity Group is one that we've spoken about. Aussie Broadband is another one you know, grabbing, um, so Aussie Broadband, you know, they're a a, a retail service provider from an internet perspective uh, for the listeners. So they are growing, one of the fastest growing um, companies in that part of the market at the moment. So they're in the process of taking over a business called Over the Wire, which is another ASX listed company, which we think will drive their earnings close to 100 million of EBITDA over the next 12 months. Uh, So the opportunities in that telco space um, are quite apparent. Um, At the moment, we don't have a huge level of, um, ownership in the retail sector, but we think that that's starting to show a bit of value. Um, you know, we do own companies like Premier Investments, Nick Scully and Beacon Lighting, which we think are first class from a management uh, team perspective and growth profile. But we've seen a lot of pain in the retail space over the last 12 months after the great period of performance they had coming off the March lows, uh, 2020 lows. So we're starting to do a bit more work on the retail space. They've come under pressure, particularly on the cost side uh, with supply chain issues, Um, and cost pressures, raw material price increases and generally retailers don't have the ability to pass those on to customers, um, low pricing power. So that's one area that we're starting to look amongst and we'll meet with a lot of those companies over the upcoming reporting season.
0: And lots of people are talking about inflation, inflation coming through. I think anyone who's shopped for a new or second-hand car or a push bike or a surfboard or um, even gone to buy a property has seen that asset prices and the cost of things seems to have gone up inordinately, are you paying any attention to companies in your portfolio that can pass on those prices, that have a price inelasticity, or is that something not of concern to you?
1: Yes, absolutely we are. And so companies like Premier, in the retail space, the Premier Investments are the masters at that, you know, being able to absorb and pass on those higher costs. Um, Whereas Adairs was another one more recently that announced a profit downgrade because their inability to pass on those higher costs. So we are looking for those stronger business models that have got the ability to, to pass on you know, those high level of costs. But when we look forward over the next, on the medium term, you know, we think that some of these, uh, particularly the supply chain um, and raw material prices increases that we've seen you know, won't be sustainable. They'll come back down to more normal levels as the world returns to normal post this awful pandemic um, that we've been through. So there, there certainly will potentially be quite large upside for some of those companies from a margin perspective once those cost bases Uh, start to normalise, and it will be interesting to see the companies that have passed on that in the form of higher prices, whether they give that back on the downside as well. Um, So that will be an interesting dynamic, we think, over the medium term.
0: Now on the flip side, you've articulated that you like companies that compete with Telstra. Um, Are there any areas of the market that you look at and see and just go, oh, that's not for us, that you're really trying to sidestep or keep away from? Unprofitable companies in the technology
1: space. Uh, It's there's too much hot air there at the moment Um, uh, you know we've seen ridiculous valuations I mean there's I could list off a few brain chips one that comes to mind it's got a market cap of three billion dollars and last time I checked it generates I think six million dollars of revenue last year that's not for us Uh, and we so we think there's significant pain further pain to come for a lot of those companies over the next six to 12 months um, on the back of you know interest rates going up and people's propensity to own those longer type duration assets has started to deteriorate and we think will continue to deteriorate further from here. So that is one space which we can see coming under a lot of pressure uh, over the next six to 12 months. And I, it's a bit of a shame really because we were talking about the unlisted space earlier. What it's done is it's, it's forced a lot of companies to list on the ASX too early in their life cycle. You know, Whether they're two or three years out from being even and I mean, give you an example, there's a, there's a little microcap called LayBuy, which is a buy now, pay later business. So it floated right at the peak um, when buy now, pay later was, was all the rage and after pay was at $160 a share. And everybody wanted a piece of LayBuy, this new IPO, and it listed uh, with a, pr- a listing price of $1.50, it went all the way to $2.20. It was very hard to get any shares in the IPO. Everybody wanted a piece of it. Um, so it went all the way from $2.20, today it sits at around 20 cents. With a market cap of thirty million dollars, um, and they're going to need to raise money very, very quickly. So, I like to call them—I well, don't like to call them this—but there's a lot of zombie companies like that um, that are now listed on the ASX that have got very limited options in their ability to to source, um, you know, cap access to or access capital to, to enable to grow from here. And I think that's one example. We've seen another one, New Foods Group, um, milk kit milk kit provider, um, which listed. Um, just over a year ago, I think it was at dollar sixty a share. In the first six months, it might have had one or two profit downgrades. The share price halved, more than half, down to $0.70. And then just after that, they accepted a takeover proposal at just over $0.90 a share. So they, they accepted a takeover bid. The poor shareholders were down 30 or 40% from the IPO in the space of a year or so. So again, a, prof- a company that was not profitable. So we think that um, we were strong believers that um, a lot of those companies that continue to come under a lot of pressure and you know our process. Um, you know we think will hold up quite well in that in that regard, given that we don't own, don't have exposure to those type of things.
0: And are you happy to invest in in IPOs?
1: Yes, we are absolutely. Um, last year was probably the lowest. Uh, level of IPO participation that we've had um, in, our, in our time over 15 years of investing in the Australian equity market.
0: Which I think by all reports it was not a good year for IPOs so you did well there.
1: No it wasn't and the, but there were some good ones over the, over the journey but some of them have certainly given up the ghost. Um, you know little ones I think over step one um, which was a good performer blue bet certainly did quite well in the early days as well um, both now trade below their listing price so again a lot of that comes down to I think David is those companies just listing too early particularly at microcap end. Um, where it's interesting, the brokers incentivize to get the company listed, they're generally in a high fee on the deal. The fund manager loves it, because they're getting a leg up on day one, generally 20 to 30% higher or more on the, what they've invested in at the pre IPO level. And the company loves it, because they're getting told how wonderful their business is and how great it will be to be a public listed company. And so- um,
0: Which so- is interesting, Chris, because we're getting a lot of feedback from private equity that companies are now staying private for longer, and the only way you're gonna get exposure to technology and high growth companies is via um, private, private equity. And, and what you're saying is you're seeing a lot of companies that are listed prematurely. So you know, it just, it's on both sides, really, it's growing.
1: N- no doubt. And I think the next wave for those companies will be mer- a lot of merger M&A activity. Um, you know, particularly, I saw there was speculation in the paper like Sezzle is another buy now, pay later business speculation in the newspaper recently they're looking to merge with zip another buy now pay later business mm-hmm. so i think that's quite logical for them um, but i think for a lot of these what i say zombie zombie companies uh, there's not there's not many other ways to go um, whether it be a, or unless it's a privatization or a, a takeover bid but it's hard it's se- hard to accept a takeover bid even say 70 or 90 percent below an ipo price in the last two years it's very very hard for a board to recommend that to the shareholders so um, i think that we're We'll return to what we had you know, going back pre-2020 um, which was you know, in my experience in doing this for 15 years is that um, unlisted company investing in unlisted companies is very, very difficult and it, it generally doesn't work. Um, I, I mean, I, the real-life example I had back at Wilson Asset Management inheriting the portfolios that I ran there for eight years back in 2010 was I inherited the portfolio. There were five unlisted investments in that portfolio that I inherited. So fresh set of eyes have come in. And I've got right. Let's try and um, create a bit of value from these positions. that all have been written down to zero and taken at various moments in time before that, anywhere from five to seven years before that. Um, when I left eight years later, they're all still there and they're all still worth zero. So I've been through that experience, and uh, I think that was a good lesson that I've been able to we've been able to apply, particularly um, you know, we think through this current um, current current uh, period in the market.
0: So Chris, your fund's full at the moment to new investors, so I'll throw a slightly curveball at you and you can pass on it if you want. Um, if you had a dollar to invest and you weren't able to put it into your fund, what other funds or what other investments would you look to put it in?
1: Oh, that's a good question because I just invested more money in our own fund just gone back a few days ago. Um, look, I've got um, you know, personal money, um, other managers, QVG Capital, I think yep. are, are a fantastic manager in the small cap space. And they've delivered very, very strong returns, not only at QVG, but at Osbill, Dexia, where they were previously. Um, Hyperion Global, I think you know, there's certainly one that... I uh, prefer a manager that's not going to hug a benchmark. Mm-hmm. And so you accept uh, periods of you know, underperformance like they're going through now. Um, but previous to that, they've had an incredibly you know, strong two or three years. Um, and the other one would be the Paradise Long Short Fund um, run by David Mobley. We th- I think he's a fantastic operator, coming up to his th- three-year track record, Um, in June of this year and he's delivered an alpha in that long short strategy. So they're the three other managers that I've got um, some of my own money with, but primarily the large majority of my personal wealth is invested uh, in
0: their own fund at 1851. Terrific. Chris, that's been fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Pleasure, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codercapital.com.